Amen. Well, this is the last of six, uh, six qualities of an effective witness that we're looking at. And kind of we've had this hyper-focused look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And some of the other qualities that we have looked at are boldness, sincerity, transparency, other-centeredness, industriousness. And today we're going to look at this quality of encouragement. Encouragement. In fact, we know that we need this desperately as Christians in the world that we live. There are so many discouraging things that can often uh, hamper our walk with Christ. And so we need each other. We need each other to encourage us, and we need to encourage other people. Well, as we notice these six qualities, it's important to remember kind of the context of it all. The Apostle Paul was the one who wrote this book, and he is the one who actually went to these believers. He shared the gospel with them. He nurtured them in their faith, and they he, he mimicked, the way that he lived among them was, 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 was uh, he mimicked Christ or imitated Christ. And so they saw the, the way that he lived. And uh, these Christians in Thessalonica, they mimicked him. So Paul mimicked Christ. So each of these six qualities that we're looking at are qualities that we see in Jesus. But they're also qualities that we saw in Paul's life. So Paul imitated Jesus, and then these Christians in Thessalonica, they imitated Paul, they mimicked him, and then they became a pattern for other Christians throughout the region, other churches. And the fact that they became a pattern means that these are all qualities that should be evident in our life. So if we imitate them, then in a sense, we're imitating Christ. Does that make sense? So we have these six qualities that we notice here in the text, and we, this last one is encouragement, and this is something that we all desperately need in our own Christian lives. Well, the point of what we're reading, we need to keep in mind is this, that we must always live the Christian life with the end in mind. We must always live the Christian life with the end in mind. And this passage gives us three motivators for Christian living, three motivators for Christian living. Number one, it gives us a mental image of the Christian life. It gives us a mental image of the Christian life, and he compares the Christian life in verse 11. He says, like a father with his children, like a father with his children. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Paul and how he compared his life to a mother, compared himself to a mother, and one of the the great images that we took from that is that Paul kind of looked at his life like a mother bird with, uh, with her young. That mother bird conforms her life to take care of her young. And in the same sense, Paul conformed his life to take care of the family of God, the church that existed there. And by extension, they then took this and put it into practice in the way that they dealt with other churches, that they conformed their ministries in a sense, in a way that was other-centered so that not only were they effectively ministering to each other, but then they were effectively ministering to other churches. And then by implication, it means that we need to do the same. We as believers need to conform our life to helping others within the body grow in Christ. And so in that sense, we need to be other-centered. 
But here he compares himself to a father, a father. And we really don't know a lot about Paul's marital status. Uh, we know that when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, we notice in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 that he was not married. We don't know for sure if he was ever married before that. We don't really know if he uh, had kids. We don't know any of those things. But what we do know is that he considered those who are part of the body of Christ his kids, his children in the faith. It reminds me of somebody that uh, we once had as part of our congregation who, uh, who led a lot of people to Christ, who nurtured a lot of people in the faith. And sometimes he would pull me aside and he would say to me, see that person over there? Say, that's my kid. That's my kid. Oh, that's one of my kids. Somebody would come in, oh, that's one of my kids. And he thought about his relationship with people in the church that way, like a father. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to think about this, about being a father. It's probably easier for most of us, though probably not all of us had easy mothers. But for the most part, it's easier for most of us to think about a mother as self-giving because most of us experience that. But for a lot of us, it's harder for us to think about a father, uh, spiritually, especially when we think about it in spiritual terms, uh, uh, being like a father. Maybe some of you experienced a, an abusive father in your life. Maybe um, your, your father figure was somebody who didn't really care about you. And so uh, to put father with your spiritual life, it's difficult. Sometimes uh, when we have Father's Day, uh, we celebrate Father's Day and, and we have a message on being a father or God as father, it seems as if every year somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I have a real hard time with that idea of fatherhood because the father I had was such a poor example of what a father ought to be. Well, it's important as we think about fatherhood that we, even, even the best of us, I'm sure, had fathers who made mistakes here and there. And it's important that as we think about fatherhood that we kind of uh, scratch off the, 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 the hard drives of our, our mind, scratch off or delete all of those, those images that we have of unhealthy fathering and replace it with a picture of who God is as father. So I have a couple of examples of, of God as father to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Look what we see in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. It says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. This is such a, a beautiful picture that God understands our struggles, our weaknesses, because he's our maker. He's our maker. Or we think about his, his dealings with uh, his children, Israel, particularly when they were rebellious. And, and uh, there was a time when Israel separated into two nations. You had Israel in the north, you had Judah in the south. And uh, this, this northern kingdom of Israel was often, uh, the, the, the term Ephraim was often used for because that was a very large and powerful tribe in the north. And uh, the north was known for being particularly rebellious against God. But this is what we read in Jeremiah 31, 20 about God's love for rebellious Ephraim. Notice this. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. 
Do you see that loving kindness, that mercy of God that, that we see as Father just ebbing through the, 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 the Word of God itself? And it's really important that when we think about fatherhood, particularly when we think about it in spiritual terms, we think about it in the sense of God's perfect fatherhood, His perfect love for His children, His perfect love for those who belong to Him. I love how the uh, NIV translates verse 11. I love how the NIV translates verse 11 because it brings out the flavor of the text. It says this, this is how the NIV does it. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. For we know that you, for, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. There, there are a couple of observations we can make about this. When Paul thought about his life, when he thought about his ministry among these Thessalonian believers, he understood that it was individualized. You know that nobody, nobody in that church, when he was serving there as the leader of that church, felt ostracized. There were no cliques there. There wasn't an in crowd and an out crowd. No, no, Paul loved each one of them. He cared for each one of them. Every single one of them were important. They were valuable. It was, a, it was an individualized ministry. Imagine, imagine if, if, if that just took root in every church. It took root in, in uh, this Thessalonian church. And we know again that they became a pattern for other churches. But imagine if this just took root in every church. How often we struggle with this. We struggle with relationships. Sometimes we struggle with feeling like we don't belong. We feel like we're on the outside. We feel like certain people get attention and certain people don't get attention. But that wasn't, that wasn't Paul's approach at all. That wasn't Jesus' approach at all by implication. And that wasn't the approach of this congregation. This congregation was a healthy church. And if any church wants to be a healthy church, that is at the very root of it. That every person feels valued and loved and there was individual attention given to everyone so that no one was sort of in the in crowd and no one was on the outside looking in. And the second thing we notice is is that no one was disregarded. He says, as a father deals with his own children. You see the emphasis on his own children. What that tells us is is that not only were there no outcasts and everyone was given uh, attention, equal attention, but, but the People were precious. They were precious to Paul. He, he cared for them as a father cares for his own children. Think about that. A good father. Think about a good father, the way that a good father loves his own children. When a good father loves his own children, his good father doesn't pick uh, favorites. He doesn't say, oh, I love this one more than that one. I can't stand that child, but this child I love Now, it might be true that some fathers might have a better relationship with some kids than they do with other kids, but a true father that loves their kids, loves them all in the same measure, and every one of them are precious. And can you imagine what that would be like for us as a community if we looked at every single person in our body, no matter how young they are or how old they are, that we looked at them as absolutely precious and valuable? This is the kind of picture, this is, the, this is the, 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 the painting that is being painted for us in the text. We're given a men, mental image of what the church ought to look like, like a, like a father with his children. 
Second thing, second thing he gives us here is a, is a concrete way to get here. The first thing is he gives us a picture, he gives us a mental image of what the, what the, uh, of what the Christian life is like. The second thing he gives us is a concrete way to get there. We read in verse 12, he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, um, these are... These three words, um, exhorted, encouraged, and charged, all three of these are present participles. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because a a present tense participle, if one was used, it it means the constant activity of a person's life. It isn't a once and for all thing. It is a continual, constant thing. And therefore, again, I really like how the the, uh, NIV translates this once again. It comforts it as encouraging, comforting, and urging. Why why does it translate those words that way? Well, it's because this was Paul's practice. His constant practice was was, um, exhorting, was encouraging, and it was charging them to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Well, if we're going to understand this very clearly, what it was that he was exhorting them to and encouraging them to and um, charging them to, it's important that we not only define what those words mean, but also define what it means to live a life worthy of Christ. I, I pray, I pray that that's, that's what we all desire, to live that kind of life. Well, he lays it out for us very clearly here. So, uh, this, first, this first participle, to ex- exhort, it means to... It means to urge a person to follow a certain mode of conduct or to, to go on a certain road. So let's, let's give like, a, like a, a, a metaphor for this. Suppose you were, suppose you were, um, you were at home and somebody in your family got really sick. And you called the doctor and uh, the doctor said, well, I'm calling in a prescription. This is very serious. You need to, they need to get this medicine very, very quickly. And they call it into a certain pharmacy that you know is at the end of a long road. You know that the, the road comes to a dead end and at the end of that dead end is this particular pharmacy where uh, the medicine that can be picked up to help your family member. And so what do you do? You, 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 you don't want to leave the person's side who's sick, so you have somebody there maybe who's visiting with you. And you say to the person who's visiting with you who doesn't actually know, maybe they've not been to the end of this road, maybe they've never seen this particular drugstore. And so you say to them, all I want you to do is go out to this particular road, get on that road, and go all the way to the end of the road. And once you reach the end, you will be at the destination that we need you to be so that you can pick up this medicine to, that will help this person that we love. That is, that is to exhort someone. It is to say, it is to say to them, look, there is a road that has a final destination and you need to get on that road. And that road, of course, is to follow Christ, to follow after Christ. We need to exhort people to walk in a manner that's worthy of Christ. Well, we have another, we have another word that is to encourage, to encourage. And to encourage someone is to call upon someone to stay on the right course. It is to call upon a person to stay on the right course. So now let's uh, continue this little, little metaphor. So the person gets on the road, they're, they're, they're heading down toward the place, and, and they feel like they've been driving for a long time, and they're not getting there, and they've wondered if they've passed it. 
So they get on there, they pull over to the side of the road, they call you on the cell phone, and they say, hey, I, I want to give up and I want to turn around. This road is an awfully long road. I haven't seen the drugstore, and, um, and, and, uh, and I'm afraid I've passed it. You say to them on the phone, no, keep going. It's all the way at the end of the road. The road is a dead end. At the end of that dead end, you're going to find that pharmacy, and you're going to be able to buy this, this medicine that we need. Just stay on the road. The, the, the fact is also true that in the Christian life, when we exhort people to get on the, on, the, on the road that they need to be on, we know that there's going to be all kinds of challenges that we're going to face in our life. All kinds of things that are going to discourage us. If you have walked with Christ for any amount of time, you know this is true. You know that you faced discouragement. You know that you faced hard times. There have been things maybe that you faced that has made you angry with God. And there have been times in your life where you've just wanted to turn back. You know what we need to do? We need to encourage one another. We need to say to those who are, are uh, wanting to turn back, we, we need to say to them, no, stay on the road. You're on the right road. Keep going. That's the idea. And then the third thing we notice is charge, charge. It means to remind somebody of how critical it is that they, they follow through on this, on this commitment, uh, that they continue down this road, that they persevere down this road. Uh, Paul uses this word in Ephesians 4.17. He says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. What is Paul doing? He is charging them. He is saying to them, you must not go back to your old way of life. You must continue on and follow Christ. Yes, the road is difficult. Yes, life is hard. Yes, things will go wrong, but continue. At the end of that road, you will find Christ. You will find everything that you were made for. Just continue on. It is, it is of vital importance that you continue on in that journey of faith. And so we Notice here that with our little metaphor, somebody is driving along and um, they're on this road and they're discouraged and they want to turn around and then they pull over again. They call up and they say, I want to I wanna stop. I don't want to go any further. I'm sure I've passed it. They say, no, you haven't passed it. It's at the end of that dead road. Just keep going. You will get there. You need to get there. You understand that, that this is your final destination, that if you don't get this medicine and if you don't bring it back, that, that the person that we love is going to continue to get sick. Who knows what's going to happen to them? You need to press on. Don't give up. We need you to get that medicine. It's the same thing in the Christian life. We need to urge one another on in the Christian life, and we need to remind each other why it is so important. Why it is so important. Well, what is it that we are to persuade one another to do, to encourage one another to do, to charge one another to do, to exhort one another to do? It is, as we notice in the second part of verse 12, it is to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, the word for walk is a word that describes the whole manner of a person's life. And really, in the Bible, somebody can walk in a way that's evil. They can walk in a way that's righteous. It's the context that gives us the understanding of the, the kind of life that's being talked about, the, the worldview of the person, the way that the person lives their life. And, and he fills that conduct, uh, that, that content with these words, to walk in a manner worthy of God. So the question is, is what does it mean to walk in a, in, a, in a way that's worthy of God? And a lot of us, as we think about our own lives, we say, well, there's nothing worthy about me, right? But the Bible says that we can walk in a way that's worthy of God. And the wonderful thing is, is we can look at other Bible passages which show us exactly what Paul means. 
Paul uses a parallel to this in the book of Colossians. So let's take a look at it for a second. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. It says this, it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See the parallel? Okay, now he fills in the content. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Fully pleasing to him. Imagine that, making that the the goal of our life. I want to live a life that is fully pleasing to Christ. I want my every decision to be fully pleasing to Christ. That is my goal. That is my ambition. That is my desire. And you know why that's so hard. Because we have such a pull within us that wants to live everything, that, every dictate of our heart and life. We want to do it according to what pleases us. But the life that's worthy of God or the life that's worthy of the Lord is a life that is lived to please Christ. Bearing fruit in every good work. Now it's important that we talk about this. Bearing fruit in every good work. The Bible's clear. It says in Ephesians 2.8, that there is nothing we can do to work our way into heaven. There's nothing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Not by works, lest any man should boast. We cannot be saved by our own good works. We are only saved on the merits of Christ. If, if we were to come to the belief that we could be saved on our own merits, then it, what we would be saying is, is that Christ's work wasn't sufficient. It's really important that we understand that because that is, the, that is the basis of the gospel. That is the basis of the good news. We have been separated from God as a result of our sin because of our rebellion and we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins and every single one of us were headed toward a literal hell, eternal separation from God. But God, seeing our lost condition, sent his son Jesus to take upon himself our sin to be put to death on a cross He conquered Satan and all of his work on the cross, and he conquered death when he rose again from the dead, so that through faith in him and through faith in him alone, we are saved. But also tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So so, um, good works don't produce salvation, but salvation produces good works. God's handiwork should be all over our lives and the way that we live. It should be the outgrowth of our relationship with Christ. It should be a life of good works. And if I don't see that in my life, if I don't see a desire in my life to live for him and to serve, with, serve him and to glorify him and to please him, then I have to ask myself the question, have I received the new nature? Has he changed me from the inside out? This is part of the Christian life fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And there's two aspects of this, right? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Number one, it's through knowing God's word. It's knowing what God tells us about himself to make God's word of primary importance in our life that we get into God's word on a daily basis. But secondly, there's this experiential knowledge of God that we have of him as we walk through life, as we go through struggles and sometimes through temptation, and we say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going through this difficult temptation. I'm going through this hard thing, but your word says that I need to, I need to follow you in this situation no matter what it is. And you know what we discover as we follow him in those situations where we face temptation and we rely on his promises and we don't, we don't walk in the way we want to go, but we walk in the way that he wants us to go? 
A relationship is cultivated with him. An experiential relationship with him is cultivated. And we grow in this knowledge and in this relationship as we follow him. We continue on being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Here, do you see that? For all endurance and patience with joy. Isn't that an incredible statement? The Bible doesn't promise us that when we come to Christ, everything is going to be hunky-dory. That everything's going to be easy, that we will have no problems. In fact, the opposite is true. And there are a lot of people out there who will say that if you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. Just come to Jesus, and, and that's what's going to happen. But, but was that what happened in Jesus' life? Did, all of, did, did Jesus not suffer? How about the one who wrote this book, Paul, or wrote that statement? Paul, did he not suffer? You know, he lost his life. He lost his, his head for the sake of Christ. He spent, he spent uh, uh, years in prison for the sake of Christ. Do you think he would tell you that all your problems will go away when you come to Jesus? No. But when we go through difficulties and we go through trials and we go through struggles, what God promises is that he, he will give us himself. And therefore, in the midst of those struggles and trials, he will give us endurance and patience and, and the most of all joy. And I think that this is what we, what we long for, isn't it? In our Christian life, isn't it what we long for in life in general? To experience true, lasting, deep joy? We'd rather have joy in hard circumstances than no joy in good circumstances. I've, I've been there. I've been there in my life. I'm sure you've been there too. I remember once there was one period of my life where, where um, my life seemed, everything seemed to be right and good. We're in our old church in Vancouver. The church was growing, beautiful fellowship, sweet people. We're seeing people come to know Christ from every walk of life that you could imagine. People were coming to Christ from Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and witchcraft and, and, and you name it, from nominal Christianity. People were coming to Christ from all these backgrounds and we were able to baptize these people. But you know what? Something happened to me in those last nine months that I was there and I can't explain it. Joy was completely removed from my heart. Every part of my life was great. I, I loved my wife. I loved my family. Everything was great. Nothing could be better for me. And all of, the, all of the ambitions that I had in my life, they were being fulfilled right in front of me. But I had no joy in my heart. And you know what? I didn't have any joy in my heart, even though all my circumstances were good. You know what that meant? It meant despair. You can have everything going for you in your life and you can be joyless and you can find yourself in despair. But here's the beautiful promise that God gives us when we go through times of struggle and hardship and, and, and all of these things, that he promises us that he will walk through those times with us so that as we go through it, we can reach out to him and we can cry out to him and know that he is there. And in the midst of that, even in our great struggles, we find joy in Christ. I hope you found that. Let's keep going. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What an amazing picture of God's grace that we 
no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what hardships we find ourselves, no matter what the situation is, we can live with thankful and grateful hearts, knowing that God is with us through thick and thin, no matter what we go through. And we have this glorious picture of what it means to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. Oh, amazing. Well, finally, he gives us the reason it matters. First, he gives us a mental image of the Christian life. Second, he gives us a concrete way to get there. And third, he gives us the reason it matters at the end of verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What is he saying to us? That God has in store for us something that is far greater and far better than we could ever experience in this world. That's what's at the end of the road. It isn't a pharmacy. It's him. It's Christ. It's life in him. He's painting this picture. Now, there's two ways that we can understand. The the biblical authors use this idea of kingdom in the New Testament. In one sense, the kingdom of Christ has already been inaugurated. He has defeated the, 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 um, the usurper king, you know, Adam, Adam, uh, Adam was given this, this uh, gift of kingship. He was a viceroy. He was a representative of God in the face of the earth. He bore God's image. And then in some sense, as we talked about it a few weeks ago, he rebelled against God, and as a result of it, he, in some manner, he began to resemble the snake. Remember that word, therefore, uh, he, the, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. It was a play off the, the word for crafty, which describes a serpent in Genesis 3.1. In some sense, he had realized that he had taken on a nature that was similar to that, that serpent that tempted him into sin. And so now, in some measure, in some way, Satan is called this prince of this age. And he is a usurper king. But we know that Jesus vanquished him at the cross. We know that Jesus overcame death in the resurrection. Yet we know that that usurper king continues to challenge and wage war against Christ. And that's what we deal with on a daily basis as Christians. Christ rules, he reigns, but his reign is challenged. But I want you to know, this is the way he's using it here, that there's going to come a day when Christ's rule and authority and his kingdom will no longer be challenged. And it won't won't be that it won't be challenged for one day or one week or one year or one century or one millennia. No, never again will his kingdom and his authority ever be challenged. And, and this is what we are, we, are, uh, we are being called into, who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. You see, when Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, uh, prior to that, heaven and earth were merged. They, they, they lived there with God. They had a relationship with God. They were, they were not only, Adam was not only a king, but he was also a priest who, who, who ministered before God. He, he communed with God. He had this, this sweet relationship with God. But when he rebelled against God, heaven and earth, in a sense, were torn apart. Adam was sent out of the garden. And there was a separation between heaven and earth. 
And Jesus, Jesus began the rescue effort when he came back, took on flesh, he came among us, and then went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And this is what Paul says happened through Jesus. This is, this is the ultimate plan. We look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is that telling us? It's telling us that heaven and earth will be fully merged again. Just as, just as it was God's plan when he gave Adam and Eve that commission to go into all the world. God's plan was that the, the, glory, the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the Cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Well, I want you to know one day that's going to happen. And the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There will not be a part of this world that will be challenged. There will be a challenge to him in his authority and in his rule. And one day we will live under his dominion and Christ will live with us and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. You know, we live in a world where... where um, where we have, we have political leaders who shake their fist at God, where there's, there's one pastor in Canada who's been put in jail. Why? Because he wanted to have church services during COVID. The same thing that we've been doing all these months. He's been put in prison because he wants to serve Christ. It could happen here. Persecution could come to here. There are people who shake their fists at him, but Psalm 2 says that God laughs. God's power can't be challenged. They shake their fist, but they are here today and they're gone tomorrow. But God and his kingdom and his rule will endure forever. There is no king like our king. Our king rules over all things, all places, all time. And one day we are going to see it with our own eyes in its glory and the wonder that only can be put on display with his rule. This is, this is what we're, we're being invited to. And so we're being told, don't be caught up in the trivial matters of this world because God has something so much greater, so much bigger, so much better in store for those who know him, who serve him, who belong to him. I just want to make a mention of one thing. There's a great quote by Abram Kuyper. He was a pastor in the Netherlands. He became the prime minister of the Netherlands. I think he was the founder of the Free University of Amsterdam. But this is, this, is, this is a statement that he made. He said, um, he said, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Jesus is the maker of all the world. He is the maker of every, every material thing that exists in the universe. And one day all of this is going to come under his dominion. Just three things to remember. Number one, number one, we can't take people to a place spiritually that we've never been. We can't take people to a place spiritually that we've never been. It's one thing to talk about the Christian life. It's another thing to live it. It's, a, it's one thing to live it in good times, but it's another when our backs are against the wall. The reality is, is that we will only have the power to speak into other people's lives, to exhort them, to encourage them, and to charge them 
if we live what we profess. We must live what we profess. And there are going to be some times where we don't live what we profess and we're going to become very discouraged. You know what we do in those times? We repent. We call upon the Lord. We tell him. And you know what? The beautiful thing that the Bible tells us, assures us of, that we'll have his pardon, his mercy, his forgiveness. We feel like we failed. Today's a new day. Today's a new day. A.W. Tozer, he mentioned that there are three marks, three marks of those who have been crucified with Christ. Jesus said that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. Three marks of those who have been crucified with Christ. Number one, they are facing only one direction. They are not double-minded. They are faced in one direction. They're heading for him, heading for the cross, heading for Christ. They can never turn back. And third, they no longer have plans of their own. They no longer have plans of their own. Think about that. Imagine all of the hopes and dreams that we have, all the ambitions that we have, all the desires that we have. We come to a place and we say, Lord, I want you to be my supreme ambition. I want you to be my supreme desire. I lay down every dream and every ambition for you. Is that something we can do? Can you do that? Can you come to a place where you say, Lord, I lay down every ambition, every dream, every desire that I might glorify you? That's what a life that's worthy of Christ looks like. That's the kind of life that God is calling us to. And there's, it's easy to have a lot of things that, that become idols for us, whether, it become a, whether it's a relationship or maybe it's, a, maybe it's a job, or maybe it's something that we have. These things can all be idols, an idol that, that takes the place of the preeminent place that God deserves to have in our heart. Lord, I lay down these idols for you because I want you more than anything else in all the world. If we want to urge people to take that road, to get on that pathway, we must be on it ourselves because we can't take people to a place we've never been. Secondly, our commitment to Christ will be evident in our commitment to one another. Our commitment to Christ will be evident in our commitment to one another. Remember, Paul imitated Christ. The Thessalonian believers mimicked Paul. They became a pattern for other Christians. That means that they're a pattern for us. That means that this is, this, our church should reflect this, but also at the same time, each one of us individually should reflect these things. So... Um, Something great I learned a long time ago about conducting interviews. There should be two kinds of questions that you ask if you're conducting an interview. The first question should be a values question. First question should be a values question. What do you believe? Or what do you think is important? Or do you think this is important? And then the second question, a follow-up question, should be a practical question. How have you put this into practice in your life? How have you put this in practice in your career, your profession, whatever it is? A lot of people have grandiose thoughts about the world, but they, they actually just, they just stay there. Sort of like if you're interviewing a pastor. If you're interviewing a pastor and you want to find out what the, the pastor thinks about evangelism, you ask the question, oh, okay, uh, pastor, what do you think about evangelism? And he says, well, I think evangelism is really important. Uh, Matthew 28 says we need to go into all the world and preach the gospel, we need to baptize people, we need to teach people to obey. You say, wow, that's, that's great. 
Okay, give me some examples of how you've done that, but not in the pulpit. Give me examples of how you have spread the gospel outside of your regular ministry, because most people don't get to have that platform. Well, very often you will find people who don't have an answer to that question. There's a values question, there's a practical question, and there need not be a disconnect between the two. If we believe something, then we need to live it. We need to live it. It needs to be part of who we are. It needs to be part of the very fabric of who we are. You see, our commitment to Christ will be evident in our commitment to one another. So if we say, yes, I'm committed to the body of Christ. Yes, I'm committed to loving each person individually. Yes, I'm committed to, the, to loving each person like they're my, my own family member. Every person is precious to me. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. Well, the question is, do I do that? And if I don't do that, then I need to think about how I might start doing that. Third thing. Our commitment to Christ outstrips all other obligations. Our commitment to Christ outstrips all other obligations. So we have um, uh, Augustine. He, he had this great quote. Uh, he said this. He said, Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he is valued above all. Jesus Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Now, those of you who have been in the military, you understand how this works. There's a story about a, a uh, young private in the army. Uh, he, wanted to, he wanted a pass, a weekend pass, to, to go to a wedding. And the commanding officer was gracious. Oh, you're going to a wedding? Okay, well, uh, private, I'll, I'll give you a weekend pass so that you can, you can go to the wedding. And then uh, as the private was leaving, he said, make sure you look at that, that pass on there. It says that you have to be back at 7 o'clock on Sunday night. And the young private took a look at the paper and he said, but sir, you don't understand. He said, he said, I'm in the wedding. And then the commanding officer looked at the young private and he said, private. You don't understand. You're in the army. His obligations to the army outstrip any other obligation that he had for his time. And the same thing is true in our relationship with Christ. Our obligation to him outstrips every other obligation because he's the one who, who saved us. He rescued us. It's through him that we have eternal life. It's through him that we have hope. It's in him that we find true meaning. It's in him that we find life. And the question I have for you is whether or not you've come to a place where you have trusted Jesus as your Savior. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you feel conviction in your life where you realize that, that the way that you think and the way that you live, that there's a disconnect between the two. And maybe you, you, you feel that, that, that sense of, of alienation that, that we, we feel when we are out of right relationship with God. Well, Jesus came in order to, to put us in a right relationship with God. Jesus went to the cross and he took upon himself our sin so that through faith in him, we might have eternal life. And the question is, have I come to a place where I place my faith in him? Have I repented from my sin? Have I turned from my sin and placed my trust in him? Have I rested the whole weight of my life on Christ? Have I believed upon him? If you do, you will experience eternal life 
and that life will be forever, and that will be the beginning of your Christian life. You'll get on that road, and you'll walk that road, and God will give you the strength to persevere, and one day you will meet that great, glorious, consummated kingdom in which you will be there forever with Christ. I hope you know this hope. I hope you know this joy. It's only found in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father,